I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. The American job market surprised. In May, it reversed its freefall as employers brought back more than 2 million workers following layoffs during the worst of the pandemic. The unemployment rate is still above 13 percent, but lower than it was. And it appears what happened last month was the number of workers temporarily laid off fell, while the number of workers permanently laid off rose. Brian Westbury, chief economist at First Trust Advisors, joins us. So can we say then we've hit bottom and the economic recovery is underway? Aaron, this is a great question. Uh, obviously, it depends on you know whether we have a, another uh, surge in the virus and states uh, and governors and uh, shut down again or people get more scared. Uh, and, and so let's just assume that that's not going to happen. I, I don't know whether that's a good assumption or not, but if we assume that, I think we are on the road to recovery. I mean, just about every piece of daily or weekly data that we can follow, hotel occupancy, people uh, heading into airports, uh, uh, rail traffic, steel production, gasoline demand, all of those things have turned around. Now, we have to remember they are still way below where they were a year ago. So we have a long way to go. And I think this recovery is going to take years uh, for us to get back to where we were in February. But I think we are on the road, barring the unforeseen virus circumstances. It seems as if the 2.5 million jobs created were really temporarily laid off workers going back to work. Another 300,000 people permanently lost their job. So as you suggest, this doesn't appear like it's going to be a quick recovery, much easier to, to fire than rehire. Exactly. And we also sort of have to remember back uh, to, you know, April and early May, we had uh, many states had shut down construction sites, landscaping. You know, there were a lot of things that we now look back on and we realize, you know, hey, you're outside, uh, you can social distance. Uh, and so a lot of governors amended their shutdown policies early on. So that's, in fact, one of the places that we saw boom was construction. And, and so that happened really in kind of late April, if we will, and that was measured in these May numbers. Uh, the, the rest of it is going to take time. Uh, if you can only have 50% of your seats in a restaurant open, you can't, you don't need all your waiters and waitresses back. Uh, and so, so this will just take, we, in the supply chain world, we have euthanized chickens and cattle and pigs. None, none of that can you turn on like a light switch. You know, there are all kinds of people in this world. Some are more scared than others. It will be a, I call it a swoosh recovery, not a V-shaped recovery. We may see a quick bounce early on. But it's going to take, uh, I think, years for us to get us back to 4% unemployment. And how are we really going to, to know when that V turns into a, a swoosh? Undoubtedly, some of the government stimulus programs have certainly helped. What happens when they run out? Yeah, they, this is a really good question. We know that the, there were some rules around these uh, government loans to businesses that you had to bring employees back. But, again, if you go back and look, if you can only have 50% of the seats in your restaurant open, 
when those loans run out, you, you have to stop paying somebody. So we could see a setback uh, coming, but it, it's all related to the shutdown and opening up. We're, we're seeing a huge bounce off the bottom. For example, TSA checkpoint data, uh, the number of people going into airports. Uh, we were 2.5 million people a day a year ago. We fell all the way down to 80,000 roughly, and we are now back up into the 300 to 400,000 range, uh, which is a V-shaped bounce from the bottom but it is still way below the peak. And so, so at some point, things, you know, we have that V, and then it just slowly begins to recover from there. Ryan Westbury at First Trust Advisors. As he notes, the recovery will depend in large part on the virus itself. And in 18 states, the number of cases is rising. That includes Arizona, where Dr. Matt Hines works the emergency room at Tucson Medical Center. What are you seeing there? Well, we're certainly seeing um, a surge in in COVID-19 cases confirmed and suspected coming into my hospital. Um, it's uh, it's been pretty pretty clear that we're in a a pretty major um, spike at this time. You know, we're making preparations to uh, increase the capacity at my hospital for um, folks that have COVID and because uh, they need to have dedicated um, and, and partitioned, separated areas so they don't contaminate other patients or other staff members in the hospital. So um, we're making preparations to expand the number of nursing units dedicated to COVID patients to anticipating this uh, spike to continue over the next week or more. What's causing it? Honestly, um, I I don't think it's a a tremendous surprise to anybody in public health, but when you ease back on any of these recommendations, whether it's social distancing, um, if mask wearing isn't almost universal, frankly, it's not very helpful, or in this case, when um, the state of Arizona and other states uh, move to reopen society, businesses, restaurants, the government, everything. Um, the states moved to, to open, I think, a bit prematurely. Um, CDC and WHO guidelines had not been met to even consider reopening. But uh, on May 15th, the state of Arizona did um, open up things again. And, you know, we're at almost exactly 21 days from May 15th. And that's two weeks to get you know, where, where people start to get infected. And then about a week from the time they get infected is when the symptoms can, for some, get very severe. And then we start to see them in the hospital emergency departments. So that's literally today or, or yesterday. So we're right about that timeline where you'd expect to see these spikes in hospitalizations. And that played out in your hospital, right? It did. Um, and I, I don't want to say it's only in my hospital. I know it's happening across Pima County and, and all the hospitals were seeing the surge. But that's certainly something that, that I personally saw even just last night uh, in terms of the patients I admitted to the hospital, four, four of my 11, which is a pretty significant proportion, were COVID confirmed uh, in a couple of cases and, and, and highly suspected in two others. How severe are those cases? Nobody's in the ICU yet. I hope that it stays that way. Um, but definitely these people are sick you know they they these are not um they need to be hospitalized uh, for and, and one of the major ways we decide that is for example my actually the last gentleman i saw um happens to be a rideshare driver and so you know when i'm asking him so how you know have you come into contact with any sick people he's like all the time like, oh okay um how often he's like mm, 
28, 30 times a day. I'm like, oh my, what is your, what do you do? He's like, oh, I, you know, Uber, Lyft. And I was like, oh my gosh. And he wears a, wears a mask, but just, you know, they're not 100%. Arizona's not alone. There are a number of states where cases have increased and where there have been some spikes. Should the public be concerned about these spikes? Absolutely, because it could be you or your brother, sister, spouse, mother, father, grandparent, or or child. We don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system, number one. Number two, uh, we as a species do not have immunity to this virus. It's still there. It's still running around the community. There's still community spread. And, um, you know, if you're in the middle of a thunderstorm and it is raining and pouring and, and, and you're dry because you have an umbrella, why would you fold up the umbrella if it's still raining? And that's what we just did. Dr. Matt Hines at Tucson Medical Center. Large gatherings and occasional clashes between police and citizens this week have raised the specter of another wave of COVID-19. Just as infections were plateauing in some cities and businesses had begun plans to reopen. On Monday, New York City, hit harder than anywhere by coronavirus, will begin its phased reopening as soon as curfew ends at 5 a.m. Protesters have been urged to get a coronavirus test. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton, as always. And Dr. Jen, from the beginning of this pandemic, it seems that we've been hearing about headlines about this drug. We heard it from President Trump, even about hydroxychloroquine. Well, yesterday, big news that rocked the medical world. So we've got two of the most prestigious peer-reviewed medical journals in the world issuing retractions retractions on studies by the same author. One of them had to do with the effect of hydroxychloroquine in treating COVID-19 patients. Tell us what we know. Amy, this was major news in the medical world yesterday. And really, there are two angles to it. There's the literature angle, and then there's the drug angle. So if you look at this journal, first of all, for some background, The Lancet, founded in 1823, it is one of the most prestigious journals we have worldwide. Looking back on May 22nd, they published a big multinational study on COVID-19 patients who were treated with chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. The findings of that study were that the drug really had no benefit in treating these patients and actually was associated with an increased risk of death, particularly due to irregular heartbeats. June 3rd, the story continues, the Lancet raised some concerns. They issued what they call an expression of concern about the methodology and the data collection. They asked the study's author to provide more information when the author was not able to really do that to their satisfaction. Yesterday, the New England Journal issued a full retraction of the study, followed the Lancet did, followed by the New England Journal of Medicine for the same author. This is exactly how the peer review medical literature process should work. The Lancet overseeing the author's findings. So that's why when we say this is not yet peer reviewed, it has so much meaning. I've heard you say that so many times as a qualification to any information we're getting. How unusual is something like this? And should we be distrustful then of some of these medical findings that we hear about? It's unusual, but it has happened before. And I think the points that people need to remember, they need to understand how the medical literature process worked. It is based on intense scientific intent. 
integrity. The publications, all of them use ethical standards very similar to the ones we use in journalism. There is a very strict and rigorous peer review process that's involved before something is published, even online. The methodology has to be sound for the data collection and the funding and support always has to be disclosed. So these are just some of the principles. When people hear a journal retracts, that's the journal doing its job of oversight. So what does this retraction mean in terms of what we know about this drug, hydroxychloroquine? Well, that's the accompanying major headline here. So first of all, in terms of this drug, the FDA has granted what we call EUA, emergency use authorization, for use in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Randomized clinical trials are ongoing all over the world from this drug, so we have not heard the end of it. But according to the FDA, and this is a quote, there is no evidence that hydroxychloroquine is safe or effective in the prevention or treatment of COVID-19 at this time. Every drug, every study always has its risks and its benefits and its strengths and its limitations. So the research is definitely ongoing. All right, Dr. Jen, we appreciate it. Thank you. Well, all week we have watched as protests have erupted around this country. And my next guest says now is the time for athletes and celebrities, those with the strongest voices to speak up and speak out. Joining me now, Super Bowl MVP and Hall of Famer Terrell Davis. Terrell, thank you so much for being with us. What makes this time different? Why is now the time to speak out? Amy, because it's it's just time. Uh, you know, we, we've seen this um, sort of treatment of blacks in our country for far too long. And I think the video with George Floyd really um, kind of highlighted what we've been talking about for a very long time. And it's a video of an law enforcement uh, basically killing a man, holding his knee on his neck for over nine minutes. And so you see that come to light. And then after that, you don't really see the swift justice behind it. And so we know we have a long way to go. And so right now is the time for anybody with a voice, anybody who's got fame, got celebrity, anybody who's not even, even if you're not even involved with this. Right now, it's time for Americans to stand up and say that we're tired of seeing black people being treated as second class citizens. Yeah, it's time to unite. You talk about celebrities using their voices. Well, there's one that got a lot of backlash, a lot of uproar among players over Drew Brees' comments about kneeling as a form of protest. Now, to some people, this was the wrong time for his comments. Yesterday, we heard him apologize. What would you like to say to Drew? I would say to Drew, like, this is, this is, the, this is the problem with what's happening, is that even our friends and someone like Drew, I know Drew Brees, he's a, he's a, you know, he's a great guy, but if our friends are the ones who don't take this seriously, if the people that we are leaning on don't take this seriously, and doing all of what's happening here, the, you know, the protests, your big takeaway is that you refuse to allow somebody to kneel during the national anthem and that that's disrespectful. I mean, how about it be disrespectful that a law enforcement uh, police officer is killing a man on the street? How about it is disrespectful that uh, Amy Cooper calls the cop on a black man who asked her to put her dog on a leash? How about it be disrespectful that a man jogs in his own neighborhood and gets murdered, assassinated while jogging? I mean, so... That's what we're frustrated about. Our own friends don't even come to our aid to say, hey, I see the wrong. I want to help you guys make it right. And that's why it was sort of disappointing to hear Drew Brees talk about kneeling doing the flag. As a matter of fact, kneeling doing the flag is, a, is really an act of respect for the men and women of our country. That's why Colin Kaepernick knelt instead of sitting. And so for him to make that statement in the midst of this, that's why people were upset. Terrell, what should the NFL be doing right now to fight racism within the league? We've got to talk about it. It's got to be talked about. 
A lot of people don't talk about it, so they suppress it, so they act like it doesn't exist. They've got to talk about it. There's got to be more programs to hire more black coaches, more black executives. We've got to get the NFL and everybody on board to realize that there is a problem in America. It's not just uh, with law enforcement. There is a problem that's deeply rooted in our country where blacks are not treated as equal. And we're supposed to be in, in this country. Everybody's supposed to be treated fairly and equally. And it has not been that way. And the thought is, well, if you don't like America, then leave. If you're not being treated the way you want to be treated, then leave. And to me, that's 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 the attitude of a lot of people here is that they feel like this is America. And as long as we have our stuff and it's comfortable for us, uh, we don't need don't don't mess with my time. Don't mess up my football game. Don't mess with my entertainment with your protest. If you want to do that, do that on your own time. But we have to fight together and acknowledging racism exists acknowledging that uh, unfair treatment for blacks in America exists. That's the start. We got to start there. That's a start. And we have to take it much further than that. As you know, Terrell Davis, incredible insight. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. For over a week, protests have swept our nation and the world in the wake of George Floyd's death. Here to update us on how his city is doing is Denver Mayor Michael Hancock. Thank you so much for joining us, Mayor. I know that you knelt yesterday at a memorial for George Floyd. You marched with the protesters on Wednesday, telling the crowd it's time to get to work. You have certainly had a tremendous amount of work to juggle over these past few months and especially these past weeks, because in addition to the protests, your city is still dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. So give us a sense of what the latest is on how Denver is doing right now. We um, well, with regards to the pandemic, we have been able to flatten and really get on the other side of the epi curve. Uh, tremendous work on behalf of our public health officials and the people of Denver quite frankly, who have, uh, you know, complied with our stay-at-home orders, uh, our face coverings, um, social distancing, doing the things necessary, to, quite frankly, to, to really get control of the spread of the virus in our community. Uh, we are concerned, obviously, with the social, I mean, with the demonstrations that have occurred. Uh, we do have a mass testing site that we set up even before the demonstrations um, at our local Pepsi Center where the Denver Nuggets and our Colorado Avalanche hockey team play. And, and uh, you can go and get tested free. Uh, it's very quick. And that's going to help. And I have strongly encouraged all of our demonstrators to go get tested. And we have seen the rate of testing double at that site uh, since the demonstrations begun. Now, Amy, I'm going to say this to you. One of the things that, uh, you know, I said, Bango, man, this has been an amazing year so far. COVID and now, the de- you know, the tragic loss of George Floyd that we all viewed and, and the demonstrations that followed. Interestingly enough, it sets the stage for us to look at them pretty much the same way, the same way that physicians and scientists have run into the laboratory to solve the disease and the virus of COVID. We need to do the same thing with this disease of racism and bigotry in our country. We've never done that as a nation to really peel back the layers on research and strategy development and training so that we can we can penetrate every sector of our society. Uh, because it is deep, as Terrell pointed out. And if you've got someone like Drew Brees and Colin Kaepernick and Drew Brees not getting the and understanding that he's operating from position of, of not just because he's a wealthy, successful uh, athlete, but a point of privilege that that Colin Kaepernick, who was also successful and wealthy, but yet never has that perspective of being in the, priv- the privileged class. And so it, it, it's a it's a deep sentiment that we have got to attack and get everyone to understand and be a part of. 
I think that was a perfect way to put it. Thank you so much, Mayor Hancock, for taking time out of your very busy day. We appreciate it. Have a great Absolutely. weekend. Absolutely. Thank you, Amy. And we have much more ahead here on What You Need to Know. Dr. Jen Ashton here to answer your questions on coronavirus. And then it is Faith Friday. Right here, we will talk to a major religious leader in the center of America's social justice crisis. Some words about faith that we could all use when we come back. Well, it's time now to take a good look at a lot of your medical questions that have been pouring in for our Dr. Jen Ashton. So, Dr. Jen, thank you, as always. First one, if someone is an asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic carrier, would their COVID-19 test come back positive? This is an excellent question, Amy, because... We don't know when in the disease course of infection someone can test positive or someone can test negative. It has to do with the viral load. It has to do with how much virus they're shedding and the method and way that the test is done. So there are a lot of different variables. It is definitely possible that someone who's asymptomatic can test positive. But when in the course of their illness, we have no idea. And we also don't know for people who develop symptoms whether if they were tested, let's say, two days before, if they would test positive. So they could, they could not. There's still a lot to learn about this and when in the disease course someone should be tested. Wow. All right, next question. The days are getting hotter. Is the coronavirus transmittable through sweat? No, it is not. And it is also not transmitted through tears or blood. So we have to remember this is a respiratory virus. Respiratory droplets are the major route of transmission. It has been detected in urine and stool of patients who are infected with COVID-19, but there's no evidence yet that that is a means of transmission. So remember, just because you can detect it in a bodily fluid, it doesn't mean that you can get infected from that. Okay. All right. Good to know. What is the latest information on the multi-system inflammatory syndrome we've seen develop in children? We are following it closely, especially since the CDC issued their health alert uh, several weeks ago. There was just a small study published in the British Medical Journal, um, very small case report done in France that found that 57 percent of children admitted with this syndrome were of African ancestry. So again, right now, they're still in the process of making observations, collecting data. Um, It's still rare, luckily. So we're on the lookout for it, but nothing, it certainly hasn't increased yet. Something everyone is on the lookout for is our next question. Is there an increase in positive cases in any states that have begun to reopen? Absolutely, there is. And if you people can go to the Johns Hopkins tracker, that's where we're getting our state-by-state data from. And states like Arkansas, Arizona, Utah, Texas, even Massachusetts seeing slight upticks. So again, we are watching this closely. This virus has not miraculously disappeared just because we spent one or two months indoors. Um, It's about learning how to live with it at low risk, not zero risk. And when we see massive gatherings, people without masks on, that's not a question of if the cases are going to go up. It's a matter of when and how high. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Jen. Always important to remember. And you can submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, it's my favorite day because it's Faith Friday here at ABC. And these days, whoa, is it more needed than ever before. So joining us once again, we're so lucky to have this wonderful man share some words of wisdom and inspiration with us. Yes, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, the most reverend Michael Curry, Bishop Curry, Thank you 
Thank you from the bottom Thank of you. It's good our to be hearts back. Yeah, for being with us today, because we need to hear what you have to say. I know earlier this week you released a statement criticizing President Trump's photo op in front of St. John's Episcopal Church. Can you share some of your thoughts with us on that? Sure. Um, you know, for example, I, my concern with that was that it was really a photo op. Um, and that was using the church and using the Bible in a way that I don't think would be appropriate for any political leader, Democrat or Republican. Um, if the president had gone across the street to St. John's Church, knelt down and said a prayer and then turned around and maybe opened up the Bible where in the New Testament it says, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the children of God, or read, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, or read, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and then asked us as a nation to pray with him in a moment of silence, to pray for God to help us, pray for God to heal us. That would have been appropriate, and no one could have complained about that. That would have been appropriate. But to just take a picture is using the church, an attempt to use the church and use the Bible. Uh, whether that's what he intended or not, I don't know, but that was the net effect of it. Yeah, and and we all saw the stunning and powerful images yesterday. So many gathering to celebrate the life of George Floyd and to continue yeah. to seek justice for his death through protests yeah. around the country. What message would you want to share with those protesting in their communities? Well, I, I would say that, well, first of all, it's important to protest. The right to assemble is enshrined in our Constitution to assemble peacefully. But I would also um, underscore that I think it's important for us to assemble, to make our protest with love in our hearts and with love as our goal. Justice is the fruit of true love, because justice means that I want what's right for you to be done and what's right for me. And I don't want wrong to happen to you and don't want wrong to happen to me. That's the fruit of love, which is caring for others as well as the self. And so I would say the protesters, you must march with and protest and stand for justice with love as your motivation and your inspiration, and that that can lead you to march in a way that is loving and that is not hostile. And from what I have seen, most of the protesters have marched peacefully and, and lawfully and respectfully and have often, in many instances, there have been times when protesters and police have come together and said, we're in this together, because you know what? We really are. We're in this together. <laughs> I love that you were just talking about love, because last time you were here, that's what you were speaking about, the restorative power of love. But you know that so many people are feeling anger, they're feeling pain, they're frankly feeling the opposite of love. How do you encourage yeah. people to make that change and to find love and give love when they're angry? Well, and, and first of all, I think you have to just acknowledge it because we're all human. Um, anger is a response or a reaction, if you will. And so to say, you know what, I'm angry. And it's helpful after I realize I'm angry to ask, what am I angry about? <laughs> um, to narrow it down to specific, not just a general anger, but a specific. So what am I angry about? And then ask yourself the question, how can I channel the negative energy of anger into a positive energy that does something constructive and brings about healing instead of more hurt? That's an internal spiritual and emotional and psychological exercise that we all have to do. I have to do it uh, because we're human. But then once we do that, make a determination that I'm going to be and live my life as a person of love and not sentimental love. Love is not primarily a sentiment. It's a commitment. 
It's my making a commitment to seek your good and your well-being, and you're making the same commitment. And when we do that, if we all just do that, we might be able to renegotiate the social contract in America and bind us together and heal our wounds. Mm. Any chance you'd want to run for office 2020? President Curry, does it sound good? I thought we were friends. (laughs) Thank you so much, Bishop Curry. We needed to hear that today. And every day we will remind ourselves of your words. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. God bless you. Amid national unrest, big brands and companies are speaking up in support of black American causes. And as people come together and organize for justice, Shea Moisture wants to support those communities. And they have announced a new social justice coalition, which will invest $100,000 into activists working toward social change. Here to tell us all about it is CEO of Shea Moisture, Kara Sabin. Welcome back, Kara. Uh, Nice to have you on the show again. We know that Shea Moisture has always been committed to reinvesting in communities it serves. And just a few months ago, you were here talking about that $1 million relief fund helping minority and women of color business owners. Well, now you're putting that $100,000 towards supporting activists. Tell us how the new Social Justice Coalition will work. Hi, Amy. It's it's good to be back. Um, so as Shea Moisture is a Black-founded and now Black-led organization, Many of us within Shea um, have suffered from the impact of racism and systemic oppression. And so this feels very, very personal for us. And as we saw the death of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor against the backdrop of COVID-19 and the impact that it was having on our community, we felt a sense of urgency that we had to take action now. And so the Social uh, Justice Coalition we are partnering with like-minded organizations to help us identify, identify five activists that are working in the areas of legal services, voting, um, mobilizing political action, and helping them um, make that impact within their community. And Kara, I know you're also introducing the This Has to Stop digital initiative, which will give the community a say in the investments. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so last week as we saw the events unfold, we um, posted on social media like many other brands. And, you know, I think it really feels different this time. There have been the senseless deaths of unarmed Black men and women in our country for decades, from lynchings to Emmett Till to what's happened over the past couple of weeks. But I think what is feeling different is people realize this is more than just a Black and Brown issue. This is an American issue. This is a human rights issue. And so, um, you know, the social post was one first step, uh, but we're proud to be part of the, the total Unilever organization. We have other brands that um, Dove, for example, with their um, Crown Coalition to end hair discrimination. Ben and Jerry's is one of our sister companies, and they very publicly denounced racism and uh, called for the dismantling of white supremacy. And so, um not just having a say, but having a do and, and going to action is something that, that we're really proud of and that is important to us. I know you are supporting five individual activists. They will each get $20,000. So how are you choosing who will receive that money? We are choosing um, activists that have really well thought out action plans that are focused on action. Um, and so while it's, it's great to make donations 
um, we really need to see action. And so that is why we're partnering with the coalition. We are not social justice experts, but we are experts at being there for our community. And so we realize that there is a need and we want to have this uh, identified in this month of June. And in July, we will award, uh, award the five activists. Well, we are looking forward to hearing all about it. Thank you so much, Kara. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Amy. Good to be with you. Now, with word that the NBA will be back in action this summer, and that is a huge relief to millions of players and fans, the sports absence and all of those empty playground courts have left a huge hole in the lives of many. The NBA has just suspended its season until further notice. Will the NBA suspending its season? That announcement from the NBA overnight suspending its season until further notice. You almost always expect basketball to be there, that it can't be taken away. But, you know, through this pandemic, we've seen that it too can be taken away. The entire world shut down. Our basketball world is just a tiny piece of it, but it's, it's recreation for kids. I remember growing up, we spent hours on the court. Pickup is sort of the essential uh, component of, uh, or at least the beginnings of basketball. Not all of us can play in college or the NBA. I, I sure did. So it, it was a pride um, to roll with your best five, go into the park and say, all right, let's go, let's run it. And I remember, um, you know, even being eight years old, playing um, with grown men and had to earn my respect on the, on the floor and on the court. The court is the community. The court is the family. And uh, people are missing that. I miss it with the pandemic going on. They took down every resource that a, a kid has to play. So now it leaves all the coaches with a question of how to keep the kid engaged with basketball. I know this might sound a little bad, but I have tried to play basketball with a couple garbage cans. And uh, I mean, best alternative. And if you have a trash can you can shoot into, roll the socks up, yell Kobe, hit that shot. What I say to the kids that don't have these public courts right now is to use your imagination, to keep dreaming. But the game connects us in so many ways. So take advantage of it. Whenever we all get to go back outside and things are back to normal, basketball is an easy sport to play. And I would encourage people to get out and shoot a little And of course, the exciting new development, the NBA returning to play July 31st at the ESPN Wild World of Sports Complex at Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando. A middle school near the site of George Floyd's death received over 29,000 bags of donated supplies Sunday in just seven hours. Here to tell us about their amazing community coming together during these difficult times, please welcome principal of Sanford Middle School, Amy Nelson, and founder of the Sheridan Story, Rob Williams. Thank you both for being with us. And of course, we are so sorry to hear about everything that's been happening in and around your neighborhood. But man, did you turn things around. A neighbor called you, Amy. Tell us what happened next. So it was a former parent who reached out and said, hey, listen, could we partner on getting food for the kids who live closest to the area that was destroyed by the riots that happened and things? And so we said, sure, let's 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 make a, a Facebook post. And that went viral. And then we called Rob for some help because we knew we'd, <laughs> we didn't do all that well with all that much food. Yeah. And so, Rob, when you heard from Amy, tell me what you did to try and help help out and how quickly were you able to pull things together? Yeah, so the day before the event, Amy called me and said, we'd asked for 85 bags. I think we're going to get at least over 100. And then later that day, she said, I think it's going to be more. 
And so we got our team involved and got our vehicles and equipment and everything ready over there. And the response was absolutely overwhelming. I mean, 100 bags to 29,000 bags, a little bit of a difference there. What kind of support were you receiving specifically in those bags? So we were collecting um, all kinds of food, all kinds of household items, diapers, feminine hair, uh, feminine items, soap, detergent, shelf-stable food, apples, bananas, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and we're able to get that right up, right back out to the community that needed it the most. Can you tell us your message right now to those who are looking for hope right now in these really dark times? I think it's important to remember that never underestimate the power of a few people coming together to, to do the right thing, right? We're in this position because we need to be real about the implicit bias we bring around race and how that impacts our actions. And as we come together with things like food, a technical response, we can continue to do the great work that we need to do in our city to improve race relations across our state and our country. Amy, Rob, thank you both for being with us. We wish you the best of luck, and we certainly appreciate your time today. Thank, thank you. you. And we turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for final thoughts on this Friday. Well, Amy, you know, June is Men's Health Awareness Month. We talk a lot about women's health issues here, but men have their own month, not just one. They need it 12 months out of the year. So it's really about increasing awareness about mental health, cardiovascular disease, number one killer of men and women, cancer screenings, um, wellness and fitness. But I wanted to take it one step further and recognize some of my colleagues in clinical medicine that don't get a lot of attention, which are male nurses. Mm. They represent about 10 to 12 percent of the nursing workforce. And we've talked a lot about bias, even subconscious bias this week. A lot of people don't think that men can be nurses. They're amazing nurses, (laughs) just like the women nurses. Um, And so I just wanted to end saying I'm super grateful for them, and I hope there will be more. And while they're taking care of their patients, I want them to remember this month to take care of themselves. I love that. I think everyone can fill that prescription. Good. All right. Thank you, Dr. Jen. We appreciate it. And you. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.